Let us pray. Most gracious Father, as we have heard your word read, plant it deep within us that it would reshape us, that it would mold us, that it would conform us more and more to your will, more and more to who Christ is in himself as his life flows within us. Lead us and guide us that our steps would follow the path that you have placed us on, that we would grow more and more faithful throughout each moment of our lives. And that the, at the last, you would bring us into your glory and we would see Christ face to face, our Lord and our Savior, the crucified one who is now resurrected on our behalf. And we ask these things through that very same one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Here we are now, the third Sunday after Easter. And here we continue recounting stories of the resurrection, stories of people encountering Jesus and how they responded and how they reacted and what he was doing in their midst. I think that it's funny how last week, how on Easter Sunday, we of course hear about Easter morning. We hear about the events of Easter morning of the women going to the tomb and this year of Peter and John then going to the tomb of Mary Magdalene encountering Jesus outside of the tomb after Peter and John went back home. And then last week we hear of Jesus appearing to many of his disciples in that upper room and showing them his hands and his side and speaking peace to them. But Thomas was not there. And then jumping forward in that same reading a whole week to what would be the second Sunday after Easter, the second Sunday of Easter, and we hear about Thomas's encounter with the risen Lord. But here on this third Sunday of Easter, what do we do? We step back to Easter evening, to Easter afternoon, and into the evening with our reading today from the Gospel of Luke. And we hear about something very familiar, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. These two individuals who are walking along, discussing the reality of what has just happened of all the things that they are hearing about, the sadness that is in their own hearts, the sadness that wearies and burdens their soul, for they have lost the one whom they thought was the Messiah, and they know not what is going on anymore. And that is so much like our own lives, I think, how we have events happening all around us even now, and the here and now there are events going on all over this place and all around us that are affecting us, that are changing us, that are reshaping us. There are events that are leading to grief. There are events that are leading us to brokenness. Actions on our behalf and actions that others perform toward us that hurt us. And so we are left straggling along on a walk to another village. Maybe we have a companion with us in our scenario. And we remain disciples to an extent, disciples who have known of Jesus, who know him, who have heard of him, who have even believed that he was going to accomplish what he was going to do. But in that moment of pain, in that moment of hurt, that deep grief that wells up upon us, we find ourselves not seeing Jesus anymore. 
We find ourselves not knowing where he is in the midst of the turbulence, in the midst of the storms that we find ourselves in. And so how do we respond? How do we react? Do we withdraw back into ourselves more deeply and forsake all that we had known, forsake all that we have been hearing, forsake all that has happened to us and start on a new path? Or do we continue forward thinking and speaking about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished? Do we continue to turn our eyes back to Jesus even when our eyes are cloudy and dim and unable to, to fully see that he is with us like these two disciples. Will we continue walking on that path, thinking and speaking of Jesus to ourselves and to those who are with us? For these two disciples, that's exactly what they did. In their grief, they leave Jerusalem and they begin that path toward Emmaus, about seven miles away, close to seven and a half, some think. And what do they do? They walk along and someone overtakes them. And this man, it turns out, is Jesus himself. Jesus draws near to them and catches up to them. But in this moment, the Spirit keeps their eyes from being able to recognize Jesus. The Spirit clouds their eyes so that he can walk along with them and discuss with them the things that they're worried about, the things that are grieving them, the things that are weighing down on them. And so he invites himself into their conversation with that simple question of, what are you talking about? What's going on? And they, these two disciples, one of them named Cleopas, look sad, and they stop walking, and they answer, and they tell him about everything that has happened. And here we begin hearing the word in our discipleship. We begin hearing the word and recounting the word for ourselves, by ourselves, to another and hearing another speak it back to us. And these two disciples, they recount the events leading to Jesus' death. They talk about and tell Jesus himself about everything they had seen this Messiah do. But even more so, they emphasize the events that have happened in just these past few short days of him being handed over by the Jews to the Romans and then being crucified and dying and the people, the disciples, being scattered. We had hoped he would redeem Israel. Their faith is crumbling. Their faith is struggling. But the faith is still there. Despite everything that has happened, they recount the word. They recount what Jesus has happened, what has happened to Jesus himself. They don't understand or grasp the full import of that, and that's okay. But yet they know the word. They're speaking of Jesus' crucifixion and their hope that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But then they add on, yes, and besides all of these strange things, there some of the women who are part of our company, who are part of the disciples, they were at the tomb, and they saw a vision of angels, and his body was gone. And then when they came and told us, some of us went out to the tomb and found that the body wasn't there. They continue to cling to the word. They are confused, just as, Everyone has been confused by this sudden appearance of angels, by the sudden disappearance of Jesus' body, leaving behind only the grave clothes, leaving behind those things that were wrapped around his body, which if someone stole the body, why would they bother stopping to remove all these grave clothes from him? They would just take the whole body, would they not? And so they don't know what's going on, and so Jesus looks at them, 
And he says, oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. You're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Messiah would suffer and then enter into his glory? You see, these two disciples and the many other disciples and many others who heard Jesus, they had assumed that he would just simply enter into glory. They hadn't taken into account the many passages throughout the Old Testament that deal with a suffering servant, that deal with the Messiah being stripped down and punished. They didn't deal with those passages. They saw the Messiah sweeping in and sweeping away wickedness and sin from this whole world and establishing his rule over everything in a glorious way immediately. But Jesus points out to them, all of the Old Testament points to the idea of the suffering Messiah, a Messiah who would endure the pain of the cross, a Messiah who would endure the sin of the world upon himself in order to truly deal with wickedness. You see, the Jews weren't wrong about the idea of this glorious king doing away with sin and wickedness in the world. It's just they didn't understand how he would deal with it. They thought he would deal with it by sweeping away all the sinners. But instead, he deals with it by taking sin onto himself and dying in our place. Because we are all the wicked. We are all sinners. And he dies in our place so that we won't be swept away when he returns to establish his kingdom in its fullness, in its consummation. He sweeps sin away by letting his own life be swept away in the flood of pain and suffering. In order that through that, it would be done away with. And then, because he is truly God and because he is an innocent sufferer in that sense, the Father raises him back to life, vindicating the reality that he is the Son of Man, the Messiah so that he can then enter into glory. He enters into his glorious, resurrected state, filled with a new kind of life. And here he is standing before these two disciples, pointing out the reality that it was necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, to suffer. And then he takes them through the most amazing Bible study in history, I guess you could say, as he goes to the first five books of Moses and swings through all the prophets, explaining and interpreting everything that concerns himself. An intense moment of discipleship is happening right here as Jesus reveals everything to them. We spend a lifetime, don't we, learning about these things, trying to discover how Jesus relates to the Old Testament, how the Old Testament continually points us back to Christ. We spend a life doing that, and they got it all in a few short hours. They've learned more probably than I've ever learned or ever will learn in that short time. Not that they would quit learning after that. They would continue to draw near to Jesus. They would continue to draw near by the Spirit and to be built up and renewed. Just as we continue to draw near, even when we stumble because of the struggles and the strife and the storms and the tensions around us. Even when we fall down and look away and are drawn away, we can still return. Return in the midst of the grief and the struggle and the tension. And tell ourselves about Jesus and let others tell, our, tell us about Jesus. That we can be renewed, that we can be strengthened, that we could be built up, and that we could push past where we are as disciples and go a little further down that path 
go a little further down in our learning and our understanding and in our actions. Let our faith be increased more and more. And what happens when they get to that village finally? Jesus acts as though it's time for him to keep going, but they urged him to stay with them. Stay with us. Abide with us. They had found so much joy in the words and his teaching and what he was revealing to them. They wanted to continue to abide with this man who is opening the scriptures to them and revealing the reality of the word to them. They didn't want to settle into complacency. They didn't reach a point of fullness to where they had nothing new to learn about what Jesus would do. No, they wanted to stay with this man who was revealing it all to them. And so they invited him into their home and to have dinner with them. They didn't want to lose out on the grace of God that they knew they were receiving in that moment through this stranger that was walking with them. And that's what happens when we really dig into the Word. When the Word is brought to us, it enlivens us and refreshes us in such a way. And so what happens when they get into this house? Well, we have heard about the Word and how they have been drawn nearer to Jesus in their understanding. And now we look to something strange and unique here in this story that I'm calling the sacrament. Where Jesus takes up the bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. Now, Luke is not saying that this is the Lord's Supper being celebrated here. It only mentions bread, and it doesn't say that Jesus speaks any particular words except simply that he blesses it. But I think it's an echo, an allusion to what had just happened a few days before as he goes through the motions that Luke has already described. That Jesus here is going through these motions. Maybe he is opening their eyes, and in that moment, when he gives them that bread, their eyes are open and they realize this is the man Jesus. This is our Savior. This is our Redeemer. The Messiah is here with us, giving us the bread, blessing it on our behalf, breaking it and giving it. And then he vanishes. Such a beautiful echo here of what the supper does for us. That yes, we have the word that begins opening our eyes and enlivening our hearts, but yet in the sacrament, there's a special, unique kind of union that occurs in both the Lord's Supper and in baptism, a way in which Jesus draws near to us and opens us up in a new way, in a fuller way, in a wonderful way that we don't always receive through merely reading the Word. There's something mystical and unique and mysterious about how the sacraments act and work, and I think Luke has included this little note in here about how Jesus sits down and takes this bread and goes through what looks like a sacramental act, blessing it and giving it to them, and their eyes are suddenly opened up to see and finally understand that this is Jesus here with them. It's by no accident that the Spirit opened their eyes in that very moment. It's to point a little ways back, I think, to the Lord's Supper and to point forward to that continual celebration of the Lord's Supper that occurs in the churches from then on, in the people's homes from then on, there around Jerusalem and on, and on and on into this present day to point to us the reality that the sacrament acts and does something special and unique within us. And how did the disciples react? They said, did not our hearts burn within while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Suddenly, their minds are opened up even more so. Their hearts and their understanding get it. 
They can look back and suddenly realize as they were walking along with this man that they didn't realize was Jesus, their hearts were burning as he opened the word to them, as he opened up the scriptures and taught them from the scriptures. And their hearts were being renewed little by little by little, and their eyes were yet to be fully opened. There was something happening within that they couldn't understand that didn't make sense until Jesus sat down at the table, took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they confess in words that Jesus was causing their hearts to burn within, that Jesus was opening their hearts with his very words, with the reality of the truth of Scripture for them. It all turns on the Scripture and the sacrament for us. The Scripture tells us that story. It reveals to us the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper bring that to bear upon us in a deeper, more mystical, spiritual way. Because in those moments, we are brought to Jesus and Jesus comes to us in a deep and abiding way. And Luke opens our eyes to that reality. Both here and even over in our reading from Acts, as Peter tells the people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Yes, he does say repentance and be baptized. He's speaking to a huge number of Jewish men and adults there. And he points to them the reality that they have to accept and acknowledge and recognize what they have done, the sins they have committed, that they had let the Messiah be put to death. If they don't look at that truth and say, that is true, which I did not believe before, then they can't be baptized properly. And they will then be baptized when they repent. But yet for these Jewish men, it would be impossible, I think, for them to even fathom the thought that their children, their little children would then be exiled from the covenant that they had entered into. That they would be left out of that covenant. And so it would carry on then that their children would be baptized as well and then raised in this belief such that from day one, they would be living a life of repentance because they would be taught that this Jesus was the Messiah that had been put to death on their behalf. The type of repentance that would be required of them would be a little different from their parents when they first believed. Their parents didn't know this truth until it came to them from the apostles. But for their little ones, they would be included in it from the very beginning and would be taught to believe from the very beginning and encouraged to believe and given the word over and over that they would believe and it would be worked out in them. And they would be disciples from the moment of their baptism on, being taught the truth of the word and being pointed back to the sacrament where Jesus is meeting them over and over as they recall it and as they participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That Jesus is coming to them. And what did the disciples do after this moment, after this reality of what was going on before them? They responded by running the seven or so miles back to Jerusalem, by rushing back there that very same hour, immediately as soon as Jesus disappeared and they realized what was going on, they went back to Jerusalem so that they could go see the 11, the other disciples, and tell them what had happened. And when they get there, they discover Simon Peter has seen Jesus. And they're saying, the Lord has risen indeed. 
And hearing this and being encouraged even more, they shared what they had seen on the road, what had happened to them on the road, the words of Jesus to them, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I think an important key phrase there, the breaking of the bread, that's a regular phrase in Luke's writings. As he talks about the breaking of bread, the breaking of the bread, over and over, especially over in Acts 2, what we just read, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. There's an importance there in that breaking of bread that points us back to communion, that points us back to the reality of Jesus at work in us through the sacraments and his word. And these disciples that were on their way to Emmaus that have returned responded to that work of Jesus by running back to tell other disciples to encourage them, to build them up in the reality of what had just happened to them. And here we see that this story is a microcosm of a life of discipleship, a life of acting and loving and trusting in Jesus. Those disciples on the road heard of the reality of Jesus. They encountered him sacramentally, and they are thoroughly changed realizing that he had been with them all along. And that's what happens in our discipleship as we walk through our grief and we may not see Jesus and our eyes are clouded, but know this, he is there with you in the midst of it. He is walking alongside you just as he did to those two disciples, nudging them, helping them to see through the shadow of death that we walk in, to receive his word more deeply, to recall him sacramentally, and to change us, to help us walk and encounter these hardships, these storms and tensions, these turbulent winds that we constantly walk in. As we are discipled by Jesus, we walk through them as he comes alongside us and he changes us. Those two disciples ran back to Jerusalem to share and show what they had received from Jesus. And that's where we are right now. As we walk through the grief and the struggles of our life, we have been given Jesus in a special way. He dwells within us, and what are we doing? Are we walking in that change that he has brought? Are we walking in the reality that he is walking here beside us no matter what? That he dwells within us through our faith? Are we drawing near by faith, trusting in his work on our behalf, trusting that he is here with us even in the midst of fear, even in the midst of the storm. Is he changing you? Is he changing me? Am I able to step away from my vanity, from my pride, from the blindness that pain causes me, and re-receive the gift of Christ today? Re-receive the work that he is doing within me, that he accomplished on the cross. At the cross, he dealt with all sin. But me, a creature bound by time, experiences sin moment by moment. And so I have to look back and re-receive that forgiveness over and over and apply it to each new sin. Apply it daily to myself by hearing his word, by receiving the sacraments, by responding and walking on that path that he has placed me on. I live a whole life of discipleship, even in the midst of grief and pain and suffering. 
I move from one moment to the next in the presence of God, in His grace, in Jesus Himself. My eyes are opened little by little over a whole lifetime. And it's a joy to have that happen because the little by little that they're open means the little by little that I see a bit more of Jesus. And that I can look at Him and not lose sight of Him a little bit better than I did the day before. We live and we move and our lives are changed by the work of Jesus. He walks alongside us just as he walked alongside these disciples in their struggles and guiding them more deeply into their discipleship. We look back and we remember that he has been raised. We have to think back on that over and over because it creates in us over and over again, over again a reception of his grace, a reception of his favor, of the Father's favor toward us and the Spirit's work in us. And then in receiving that grace, we are led in love to respond. So this day, as we are thinking about the grief around us, the struggles around us, and our walk of discipleship, all of it comes together in this story about the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus was with them in the midst of it and transforming them through his word and his sacrament, that they would respond and tell others and share with others the reality and the beauty of Jesus himself. And so may we dwell in that place. May we dwell in this word of God and be transformed and have our eyes more fully opened to who Jesus is for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.